Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the School of Unlearning podcast. I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been listening for the last year and a half. And thank you to you for tuning in today. Today's podcast is really special, and I'm really excited to share more about our guest. Michelle Cleary is a licensed psychotherapist who is trained in EMDR. She holds a certificate in somatic experiencing, assists at SE training throughout the year, and is an adjunct professor at SUNY Stony Brook School of Social Welfare and maintains a full-time private practice that focuses on treating trauma and eating disorders. Throughout much of her adult life, despite so much immersive education, Michelle still struggled with strong eating disorder behaviors, regular bouts of depression, mood shifts, and overwhelm. These challenging experiences were intersped during a time when she was also succeeding. She was building healthy relationships, learning, and creating. Michelle was happier and healthier than ever, but was still living with a lot of these challenging experiences. Michelle believed that there had to be something missing on this journey, and she was right. There was. It was the body. And if you venture beyond words, you do find that there's another level of healing, and that's exactly what Michelle brings to us today on the podcast. Michelle is now dedicated to discovering, understanding, and teaching others the way our nervous system and brain-body development contributes to our moods, behaviors, relationships, mental health, and productivity. Today in our podcast, we discuss how Michelle's childhood and her early adverse childhood experiences laid the foundation for um, some of her disordered eating and has also laid the foundation for her coming back to a more embodied way of eating. We discuss how we have a culture of departure, that at any given moment, we could be somewhere else, usually not here <laughs> with our phones, and how this impacts our nervous system and our habits. We also discuss her take on disembodied eating versus disordered eating, which is the clinical term that's used more often. Michelle helps us understand the role that the nervous system plays in disembodied eating and how we can come back to ourselves. Her approach is radical and it's life-changing and it's helping people embrace a new way of thinking about their body and their habits. It all begins, she says, with a return to the self, the body, a coming home that allows each person to stand firmly in their power. Enjoy this episode, my friends, and please do share it with anyone and everyone who you think would benefit. Good morning, Michelle. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Good morning. Yes. Welcome to the podcast, The School of Unlearning. Um, I know we had one initial conversation about a month ago and um, been really curious and impressed about your work within the realm of disordered eating and um, within women's health, particularly. I, I've um, I've not seen a lot of people approach uh, some of the work that you do in the way that you do. Um, so today's podcast is really important for me, and I believe all of my listeners will really benefit. Um, before we get into the, the 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 substance of what you do, finding the shift, um, I always ask all my podcast guests this, which is where did you grow up and what was childhood like for you? Because we know that all things begin early and I'd love to know just a little bit about life for you growing up. Yeah, I am from originally from Brooklyn, New York, was born there, raised in Staten Island and then continued to keep finding my way back to Brooklyn. So here I am now <laughs> in Brooklyn permanently um, with my husband and two stepsons. And uh, yeah, I grew up with um, my mom, my dad, and my two sisters. And I'm the middle of three girls. And I feel like, you know, um, while the three of us are very separate and different in many ways, I think of myself as a part of a whole. And I feel like the three of us create this really unique whole. So I'm super, um, you know, reflective about that a lot of, especially lately over the last couple of years about um, the dynamic of being one of three, three, three women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, childhood was for me personally was a bit rough, a lot, a lot, a lot of dysregulation. Um, my dad uh, was a 
was an alcoholic and um, really uh, very active, very active um, alcoholic. And he did pass away from alcoholism, I think we're at nine years, um, nine mm-hmm. years ago. And, and as a result of that dynamic, um, my mom, you know, worked a ton and was always very, very um, much on in survival mode. And so the three of us kind of um, grew up within that dynamic. Um, and again, each of our temperaments are very different. And so it's pretty fascinating looking back on it now. Um, mm-hmm. But for personally, it was, it was, it was rough. Um, you know, I started um, unconsciously and subcortically dealing with all of that by becoming extremely related to food mm-hmm. at a very young age. And as a result, I was pretty, um, you know, I wasn't, I was, I wasn't, you know, an overweight child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate even using the word over, overweight at this point because it, I wasn't, yeah. I was not a child. Let me back that train up. <laughs> I yeah. was not an overweight. Back that up. Yep. I totally. was not, I was, uh, not fitting the, the, the society's standard, um, of what, a girl should look like. Mm. And as a result, um, there was a significant amount of bullying. Mm. I mean, there was a lot of reasons why there was bullying, but that was what kids like to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that'll cut. And so, um, but mostly, so there was, there was that. And unfortunately that became really melded Mm. into my sense of self and my sense of worth for mm-hmm. quite a long time. Yeah. Overall. Yeah. <laughs> we could spend much yeah. more time. Well, yeah. we, we might a little bit, I, I, again, I'm sorry about, you know, your father and also having that type of childhood is, is, is really um, vulnerable and ripe for a, a young person growing up in this world. And, you know, I know we talked a little bit about or maybe we did or didn't, but uh, ACEs, you know, adverse childhood experiences and how that impacts, you know, uh, the nervous system and our sense of safety. Um, and uh, it, it sounds like, you know, for certain there was, you know, something there worth worth sharing maybe on your end around ACEs, but did, when you were going through these years, um, sound like food was a place where you found some sense of escape or uh, comfort, but can you elaborate on that? Did, did you, were you aware at a young age that food was a mechanism that brought you um, something that you weren't getting externally from other people? I think that is the question, not just a great question, but the question. And the answer is absolutely not. Wow. I had zero conscious awareness that food was in any way, shape or form, supporting my nervous system. I, you know, I, I've said this on, I've said this a few times, maybe in like Instagrams or something like that posts, but what was so frustrating and hard for me growing up was when, you know, I would try to get help or try to, you know, I was in therapy and trying to figure out what was going on. and therapists with the best intentions and really working from a place of what they knew would ask, what were you feeling? What were you noticing? What was happening, you know, before you went into a binge? What were you experiencing? Were you sad? What was the trigger? And the answer was nothing. I felt nothing. My relationship to food was a silent one. Mm. It was a blankness. It was a silence in my ears. It was a, like a floating There was no decisions. There was no choices. It was just happening. And excuse me, I did not know that there was a mechanism happening that was deeply related to nervous system dysregulation and survival. I Mm -hmm. did not know that until very recently. Mm -hmm. With the work that you do now and the knowledge you have now and the experience you have and the shift that you've had in yourself and the shift that you empower your clients to go through. Uh, When you look back just for your life, as you remember it, um, what are like a few things you wish you had um, at that time, whether it be a therapist who asked a certain question or 
um, you know, beyond safety in the home, which is a, a guarantee that you deserved it. And that should have been there for you. What else do you feel like would have been helpful for you? Just knowing what you know now, um, about disembodied mm. eating. Mm. <laughs> That's so it's interesting because what runs through my mind and what I'm noticing showing up with that question is all that was there that was so good that if I didn't have, I would not be here today. Mm-hmm. Being one of three girls, I think was a powerful positive in the dynamic um, with all the dysregulation and chaos and disembodiment of the adults there was still love. Um, So I always think about the things that were there that helped me not implode completely and Mm -hmm. end up where I am now. That's what popped in my mind when you asked that question, which I find very interesting, of course. Um, But the answer to the question, um, I think, would be a a deeply knowledgeable therapist that mm. had understood, but back then we it wasn't really mainstream yet to understand that therapy mm. was not really about talking. Mm. Um, and so I think a therapist that had profound training or not, mm. yeah, who had found awareness, I should say, of um the body. Mm. And that that's I think the first answer. You just said something really interesting that talking uh, that therapy is not really about talking. Can you share more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a huge shift. And as someone who was in the field doing traditional talk therapy for, um, a solid 10 years, 12 years, um, and having had been in therapy since I was a child and consistently throughout my life, it was a very, excuse me, profound experience when I first encountered somatic experiencing, Mm -hmm. which was the first time my body experienced a, another human who sat in his body and said very, very little. Mm. And not in the very little psychoanalytical way, like I give you nothing of me and the traditional, like really traditional, like don't look at me, lie on the couch. Mm-hmm. Um, not that kind of not talking. Mm-hmm. The kind of not talking was this um, use of resonance mm. and use of presence. And this person was able to observe my body and my nervous system dysregulation. And this is not long ago. This is 2015 or 16. Um, And I would sit in these sessions. And to be fair, there were, well, it's not an important detail, but (laughs) the point is, is that um, I would sit down and they, I would be directed to stop talking, which is mm. very hard for me, mm. um, was very hard for me. And it was in those moments when I became aware of my own dysregulation, when I would be quiet and this person, and actually I've had multiple therapists who have been able to do this. Mm. And the lack of insight necessary, like no need for insight in terms of narrative, in terms of mm. content, of my story, mm-hmm. it was literally the presence of another regulated nervous system and their mm-hmm. expertise and staying in their own body that mm-hmm. transformed me. Mm-hmm. Um. I'm happy you had those experiences. I, 
I'm sure a lot of people who are listening who've been through therapy at different forms um, hopefully have had an experience like that too, where they got to feel still and regulated with another person who was, you know, not unfazed, but not triggered by whatever was said or shared or not said and shared. I mean, I think that that is really the gift of therapy that maybe, I, of course, I wish I had known too earlier. I just thought it was about talking. I thought it was just about tell all the drama, tell the things, you know, it's not yeah. so much. Um, and that's probably, I, I want to get to that, how that weaves into your work too, and how you, how you practice that. Um, so w- when did you, when did you shift back into your body? Um, and that's a loaded question, I'm sure. And maybe it's a question that's still, you know, is, is a practice for you, but I'd love to just know what, what happened for you when you shifted back into your body to become aware of sensations and feelings and, um, you know, relationship to external things like food or anything. Yeah. It's an ongoing practice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. Definitely dealing with some leftover stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> it's an ongoing practice because I call it the return. Um, to return to self, not only in this world, and we can talk about the, you know, the digital world and how mm-hmm. we're just, you know, everything, everything is marketed towards us departing. Automation, yep. consumption, distraction, comparisons. Mm. So it is a constant practice. And because my nervous system is so used to departing and mm-hmm. is so used to leaving Mm. um and going into thinking and like even as I'm in the process of really getting ready to launch find the shift like I'm I've been very disembodied for (laughs) days I'm I'm spending so many hours so many hours I'm not paying attention to any cues with fullness or thirst I mean Mm -hmm. hunger or thirst Mm -hmm. sleep nah (laughs) who needs sleep you know yeah so I'm really not so, you know, I have to keep reminding myself to return, mm. but I'd say the first time I ever noticed and started to recognize that I wasn't in my body was during my SE training. Mm. When I would do the, the practicum, we would do the practice practices like in the, we, um, in the triads, when you learn something, you know, learn a new modality, you learn it, you lecture, you know, you get the lecture, you have a demo, and then you break up into groups. And my assistants, my SE assistants, oh gosh, they were hard experiences, but really powerful. Um, Because it was in those like mini therapy sessions with colleagues and peers, I would like recognize, the only way I could describe it was like this glitchiness, this like mixed with, it was like a glitchy, almost angry, agitated, a frustrated, annoyed feeling that would come up. And during these like triad, you know, practice, practices and practices and practices, it kept happening. And then when my colleagues who were learning SE would keep bringing me back to my body and bring me back to my sensations, I kept noticing that I, the best word, I remember one particular one, I think, I don't remember what level it was. It was, I think, intermediate my answer was, I feel like a statue. I feel like a statue. I feel mm-hmm. like a statue. My body is stone. I feel like a statue. Mm-hmm. And the assistant, very, you know, supporting the other therapist learning SE or the other um, practitioner learning SE, um, whispered teaching the other, ther- uh, again, practitioner, I don't remember if they were a body worker or um, a therapist, that's something, that's something, yeah. have her just stay with the stone. Mm-hmm. And I could feel this agitation and stay with that. And that's when you, and it is in those practicums, when I started to realize and experience that that all mattered. It was all relevant information. These like seemingly passing experiences of, oh, I feel like a, I feel like a statue. 
Mm-hmm. But when you add time and space and you slow down and support and you have another nervous system, and in this case, four nervous mm-hmm. systems, um, you could really start to feel. And then the, the curiosity of the anger that was mm-hmm. in the quiet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's when I started to do that is, and then I started to do it outside of sessions. And I started to notice it when I was like feeling some interesting sensation and I was mm-hmm. learning how to slow down and pay attention. Um, that's beautiful. And I, I love that you're starting with this concept of sensation, you know, like you, sensations are like, right. They, well, tell me if I'm onto this, but they precede emotion, like sensations that come up in the body. It's like the tingling. And then we say, okay, we were scared of that tingling. And then we have fear and it's hard to know exactly, but it sends from my experience and too, it, it feels like sensations are the beginning of, it's like an invitation to come back to the body. It's any sensation. Um, and we, you were saying before that really brilliantly that we are constantly invited to, to, um, depart from the body, um, especially through phones and distractions and comparison. I, I love the way you said that. I don't think anyone said it quite like that. Um, it, I think it's amazing we, sometimes with this world, the way that we have access to so many other places and other things in the world that we ever, that we're ever even here. Like I, I can't even, if I get 10 minutes a day of stillness and presence in my body, I am thrilled. And that is yeah. not my, that's not my goal, but it's, yes. yeah. It's a, we are a, we are a, um, we are a society that has been, um, I'm just going to use the word here, clum- clumsy. I don't know if it's the right word, but because I don't want to, I don't think it's by accident. But, but yeah, that's right. I don't think it's by accident. I definitely believe it's by design is to, um, in many instances, I don't want to be overarchingly cynical, but um, if we stay away from our own sense of existence, we are we we are we are easily manipulated. Then we are hundred percent easily um, sold. We are easily bought and sold. Yeah. And um, a lot of and this is the premise. And this will probably we'll talk about this later. But this is the premise of my um, thoughts on how the belief is that diet culture and diet industry created or is one of the main causes of eating disorders. And I have some differing Mm. thoughts, or I should say, I I believe that's an incomplete thought. Um, I don't think it's a complete, but yes, I agree with you hundred percent saying returning to ourselves is, has to be a conscious choice in this world. Yeah. I, I've been saying lately in, in my work in leadership coaching to a lot of the people who I work with who range from professional athletes to executives to just over, over high, high achieving performers, <laughs> over performers, yeah. um, kind of sometimes I, there's this, a sense that I'm always sort of, uh, you know, talking to them about our most precious resources, our attention. And at first it's like, no, it's energy or it's, um, you know, money or it's, you know, positivity or whatever they're defining resource as. And and maybe there isn't a definitive answer, but the more and more, I mean, speaking to you in this conversation, um, our most valuable asset, I still believe is our attention, like where we put it, how can we hold it? How can we regulate it? And I think that um, it might be the the baseline. Sometimes when I say I have had, I sit back and I say, I've had a good day. It's because I've been in my body. It's because I've been present. I've been able to cope with whatever's been happening. Um, Sometimes that's just a great day for me. And there's nothing else that really has to happen. Um, so for you, and I'm actually just curious too. So you mentioned SE training, which for those listening is somatic experiencing training. Um, tell me what got you interested in somatic and SE and, and then at what point in your work within, within psychotherapy and, and human services, did you start to say that 
you wanted to challenge the diet culture. You wanted to challenge disordered eating and move it to disembodied eating. And like, there was a few shifts here. And I know that this is a career that we're unpacking, but I'd love to just know these moments where you said, ah, SE is the thing that's, that's more aligned with my own personal growth and what I believe the world needs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right off the bat, the answer to that is that decision was not a mental one. That decision was not a thought or a cognitive um, exploration of information. That was a truly body-based answer. That was an undeniable experience that I had as I was first exposed to somatic experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like, uh, you know, I can't think of a good metaphor right now, but it was, it was, like I said, it wasn't a thought, it was an experience that I then said, well, okay. But it started because I was, you know, doing, loving the work I was doing, enjoyed thoroughly being um, therapist, felt super um, impactful, but I could see the limitations in my, in my work. I could see the limitations in me. I could feel my own limitations, mm-hmm. my own not knowing and not just not knowing information, but not knowing something. I just knew something. My instincts were always telling me and, and my instincts were telling me there's a huge missing piece, but I didn't have words for it. It was a, it was an experience, not a thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been exposed to EMDR years and years ago in my early therapy. And I decided I would do the EMDR training. Long story short, I did the EMDR training. I found my assistant, um, who is now my mentor in somatic experiencing, Sean. Um, and I would go to him for consultation, but I couldn't do EMDR. My body wouldn't let me do EMDR because I, mm. I couldn't stick to the protocol. Mm. Um, and Sean was, would ask like, okay, so let's talk about your EMDR. You know, you're paying me for EMDR supervision and consultation. And I'm like, I I didn't do any EMDR this week. Oh, Mm. okay. And this kept happening. Mm. And it is in those consultations when I was being exposed to SE and I didn't even realize it because Sean at the time, you know, Sean is also an SEP somatic experiencing practitioner. And, um, he kept saying, you need to do the SE training. You need to do the SE training. You need to do the SE training. And I stuck with Sean because my body felt it needed something that was happening. And again, it wasn't cognitive. It was following yep. experience. Yep. And despite all of my trauma and despite all of my um, dysregulation as a kid growing up, that is something I was always very good at doing is recognizing what I needed when I needed it. Yeah. Um. And so that's how I did it. And then after a year of nudging, I finally did the train. Um, high five to Sean out there. Thanks for the nudge. <laughs> you know, you, you just said, you said uh, something really interesting that you, you always knew what you need, what you needed um, when you needed it. Where do you think that sort of, I guess, instinct uh, came from, even though you were really battling a number of other um types of disassociation what what, where did that come from that knowing right I wish I could say it was always but it feels like it was like these like lighthouses in rough waters um and it's so funny I could get emotional but I'm I'm gonna try not to (laughs) you can emotions are welcome here we (laughs) we're all we're actively unlearning that emotions are you know yeah yeah welcome so I, I added a lighthouse into my concepts of mm. in my in building my idea for for find the shift and I so I never applied it to myself until just this moment so I feel a little mm. like ooh interesting um, yeah so even though there was like very rough waters my entire childhood and I felt so lost oh my god so lost and so incomplete and so empty and so mm. so unworthy. Um, there were these occasional lighthouses that showed up and I just knew to go towards them. Even though I recently found out that lighthouses really mean stay away, but my stepson was like, you know, Michelle, lighthouses really are about don't hit the rocks and stay far away. And I was like, okay, whatever. But 
it's still it's a still sign. Guiding. You get to make whatever meaning you want from it. <laughs> it's still guiding. It's still guiding, but he was very smart about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point being is throughout life, um, and I can think of a number of moments where um, something felt broke through the darkness and broke through the the despair and the depression and the anxiety and the dysregulation and the dissociation and all of that. And I would just know to guide, just go towards it. And um, yeah, and SE and Sean was one of them. And then so, everyone else that followed, because then there were so many other practitioners and faculty and people and yeah. support. Um, so one thing I think is interesting about your work and there's many, many interesting things that are, are very genuine and inviting actually to your work. There's this idea of, you know, obviously within, you know, um, within health and especially within women's health, you know, mm. the, spec- the spectrum of eating disorders. And I notice in your language on your website, you use different language. And I'd love to hear you talk about why is it disembodied eating versus disordered eating? Um, I have I, I could assume, but I don't want to, because this is your website and your work. And I just want to hear you talk about disembodied eating and, and how you feel like that allows for an invitation to a different conversation. Uh, I love it. Um, the first, there's one practical answer to that is that the first version of Find the Shift is specifically focused on the experience of what one might call binge eating. Mm-hmm. So I do hone in and really kind of narrow my focus in the vast world of disordered eating. And I do hone in on the experience of what one might ex- describe as compulsive eating or disembodied, I call it disembodied, but binge eating. And when I was working on the idea so again, just for clarification, eating disorders morph and change, and mm-hmm. it is not linear. Mm-hmm. It is a it is a it is a nebulous thing. Um, so, but just for the purpose of first versions and figuring and putting it out there, I, I wanted to focus in on people's experiences who wanted to work on that experience. So, and I decided to rebrand it, if you will, um, was because binge is a, always felt like a behavior. Binging, I am binging. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't describe the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and there's besides that there's all this negative connotation around binging um there's all this like imagery that comes up with it that is not not right and inaccurate um i wanted to to speak to people's experience and it is my belief that people who struggle with this behavior are not struggling with the behavior they're struggling with a neuro a, a, a nervous system issue, a nervous system state issue that creates an experience that the behavior is then layered on top of. Mm -hmm. So that's why I changed the language was to try and cut through, like moving away from behavior, moving away from behavior, moving away from Mm -hmm. that idea Mm -hmm. to move into experience. I um, love that you do this. I think probably a lot of people in your field, I hope a lot of people in your field understand it's not the behavior, it's what's beneath it and what's where the dysregulation is. I'm sure they, that's not, um, I'm sure that I'm, I'm hoping that's common knowledge, but I don't think that that's presented or maybe it's not, I, I don't know. I'm not, um, yeah. I, 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 I feel like we, as a society too, and in, in within the clinical realm, we get, we, we lose, we lose like what's really important. And we focus a lot on the wrong things. And what draws me to your work is that you focus on things that I would call very foundational to that feel very foundational to one's health, which is effectively, you know, nervous system regulation being in the body. I mean, that is, that is step zero and step one and two to changing a behavior. And I think that that's, uh, I love that you're out there with these words front and center versus getting to it 
you know, down the road. That's a big shift, I think, in the way that you're viewing and people are viewing disordered eating. And I, and this is my personal question slash opinion, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I've never felt like I've loved the word disordered. Um, Mm-hmm. I, 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 from what I know but my past was just being a health coach and working in the, the medical realm, I, I felt like there was always some order to these things that were happening, these behaviors that were, you know, harmful, but the, on, on a, some sort of subconscious level, isn't there a level of order that the body's trying to find some peace, some escape, some, something. And so in, in that way, it, it, I'm not promoting it or condoning it, but in that way, okay there is a level of order that the body is trying to survive and find some safety and it's doing it in ways that are harmful. But so this idea of disorder, you have a disorder, you have a, um, it it just felt so overwhelming to hear clinicians talk about it. And I was like, well, their body's kind of trying to survive and it may not be the way we like it to be. But so I, I like the shift that you move there from some language. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, I guess, the word disordered. Oh my God. Yeah. You're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, and this was actually recently clarified for me for a fac- from a faculty member because I was um, talking with Maureen about this find the shift idea, just like briefly in, in an hour consultation. And um, I was working through the concepts of all the nervous system stuff and the sympathetic and parasympathetic and dorsal vagal and ventral vagal and all that stuff. And what's the mechanisms? And I said something and I forget exactly what I said, but Maureen reminded me of this. And she said, no, it's the miracle of survival. Mm. The body, our mammalian physiology is designed to survive. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many, many steps between optimal survival and death. Mm-hmm. And in between this pattern of a- adaptation and resilience and experiences that can shift a nervous system and give them a, like a subtle, like a teacher or a coach or a random person who could show up in their life, a, a, a character on a movie, in a movie, these things all work together in this like fantastic mosaic of survival and the nervous system is designed to do that and while it may appear as if there's this disorder in so many instances it is survival yeah and it's just happening on the subcortical subconscious level Mm -hmm. and because it doesn't have words or memories or explicit awareness our culture hasn't given it a lick of relevance (laughs) yeah yeah and it's only now or over the last and again it's been happening I mean there's obviously you know it's been going on for decades that we've been talking about it but it's only in the last 10 years that yeah I don't know what number of years but recent past I I love that um I'm so happy we have that shared sort of understanding of it and I want to talk about something yeah, and we might've talked about this before you and I, but, you know, as a, as an athlete, as a woman who uh, played high school, college sports, basketball, uh, ball is life to anyone out there. Um, I, I, I found belonging, safety and celebration in effectively, well, challenging and pushing my body, but in leaving my body, like in, Mm everything from running so hard that you lost feeling below the waist. Like that was just part of cross country running. Um, Mm. you, you, as athletes, you hear, uh, running through pain, work through the pain, pain is nothing. And so as I sit back now at 38, I do realize that a lot of my life, while I would never change a thing about my athletic career is really, was really about leaving the body. It was really about you know, disassociating from pain or grinning and bearing it and moving through it. And now, obviously I don't do that. I pause and stop at every ache and pain, but (laughs) um, I've just talked to so many of my fellow friends and athletes who, especially women grew up in a culture in sports where we were, we benefited from leaving the body 
And um, I, I mentioned this to you before, but this book, Good for a Girl by Lauren Fleshman, who is a Stanford athlete mm-hmm. and Olympic, Olympic level runner, um, talks about the pervasiveness of disordered eating. Obviously, we now would call it disembodied eating in professional athletes for women because we we were given a different message, which was like the harder you work good, like, you know, almost like restriction was mm. part of the formula for success. And if you wanted to be successful, you had to restrict or you had to manipulate food to meet optimal energy or optimal performance. And so it, it's a big thing for me to even unlearn as I design breakfast or think about what am I eating or will I have two cookies today or three, you know, like thoughts come up and questions come up and it's just, it's really fascinating. Um, the different ways it can manifest for people in different categories. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The, there's not really a question there. It's a share. Um, just, yeah, I love it. It seems yeah. like, yeah, it, people in folks who are really, um, in the world of, of, of being an athlete, yeah, they're orienting to success, they're orienting to times, they're orienting to um, optimization, but they're not orienting to self. Yeah, yeah. And which is an interesting process. It is, and it was radical to eat a lot of food. You know, you'd sit down at a table with your your teammates or depending on if it was track and field or basketball, it had a different vibe. But, you know, mm-hmm. you, run, you sit down with your running friends or anything like that and you eat a lot of food and there might be some some eyes and some comments. So I think that it's just pervasive. It's subtle and it's kind of woven through our society. Um, so let's go back to you a little bit, this idea of disordered eating we're aligned, aligned with, um, we know that there is disembodiment there happening. Um, talk to us about the shift. This is a, a method and sort of a community you've created, um, out of a need, not only that you needed, but you, you are seeing in your practice. So what has made you create the shift and what kind of makes it a, uh, a community that um, really addresses the root cause of, of what's going on for, you know, your clients? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I had the idea of, I had an idea, I had a calling 10, 12 years ago, it started to build, to write, write a book. Originally, I, I mean, my first podcast I was ever on was uh, a while ago and I, had this idea for a book called peanut butter. Um, and I talked about the pod, I talked about it on the podcast and I never was able to write it because I couldn't get to the solution, if you will. And I don't even want to call it a solution because it's a journey. Um, and I remember getting emails from folks and they're like, so I, I looked everywhere for this book and I'm like, no, I didn't write it because <laughs> it's not written. Yeah. And it went from a book to a podcast to an idea for um, an app. And throughout the course of the years, I kept thinking like, and it wasn't really just for my clients, it was for really anybody. I just wanted it to be out there. But most importantly, what was consistently present in my ideas was that there had to be an element of authenticity and raw real truth of about what it looks like and so that kept coming into my brain my mind my body and then something would happen and I would think oh nope that's not going to work because it's not going to work for me and so I would be self-testing my own ideas and despite all of the work I was doing I was still having these episodes of really pretty intense disembodied eating throughout mm-hmm. my throughout throughout a lot, a lot of time. It's really only to be, well, I'm always pretty honest most of the time. Um, it's really only in the last two years, mm-hmm. three years where, and even that, that has a glitchiness to it in my experimenting and my going through my own process. But to answer your question, find the shift started coming to me about 10 years ago. And then after, and then all of that kept, le- and then all during that time, I found SE. Um, I did some really powerful and significant EMDR work with a really great practitioner. Um, came, had some pretty deep shifts in awarenesses. One in particular, when I, for the first time, saw and recognized that it was disembodied eating. And my whole world shifted, literally. Mm-hmm. 
I had this profound understanding of what had been happening to me my entire life, Mm -hmm. that it was not a behavior and that I was actually in this really interesting mix of freeze and activation that I was like driving, that there was this underlying drive to Mm -hmm. and not find, I could not, there was no finding done. And then, but there was at the same time, a departure from all other things. Mm-hmm. departure from self, departure from any thinking, departure from everything. So to answer, um, I think I'm being tangential here, but um, find the shift is a community. And, and it took so long to get to this because I needed to find the optimal, I, I needed to work out the optimal way to support nervous systems and shifting. And Um, my friend, Jen, who's helping me with this was the one who told me about Mighty Networks, which is a community, an online community. And Mm -hmm. I was so resistant. Lisa, I was like, no, no, I I don't build a community. No. Yeah. (laughs) And, and after diving into Mighty Networks and their platform, I was like, oh, right. And all the pieces started to come together is like the app will, an, an app alone won't work because you're by yourself with your phone. And when you're in a dissociated place, you are not going to use it. It's not going to work because when you are in a disembodied place, everything you think you want, you do not have access to anymore. It is gone. So it's hard enough to do it. So I housed it within a community of people ideally. And again, it has not launched yet. So mm-hmm. <laughs> see how it goes. Yeah. Um, this is the first time, you know, this is it. Yeah. It's never been done before with this kind of language, this kind of perspective in this way, to my understanding, to yeah. my knowledge. Um, <clears throat> and so, but the idea is to take education put it into a community where there's opportunity for co-regulation and attunement and support. And then take in the other indicate, the other aspect of this, which is application. So not just step one, step two, step three, and step Mm -hmm. four. And Mm -hmm. I can do that. If you can't do that, well, you must've done something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So none of of that. It's like, I'm going to show you, I have videos of me in a bitch, Mm. like in it. Like I want like, so the application part of it is here's it's cause it's a lot. It's not easy. I'm not going to sit back and be like, Oh, this is going to help every single person. And it's going to be perfect. I don't know. What I can tell you is it's as real and authentic as it gets. So then there's application to show folks what it looks like. Um, and then the last part of it is ownership. And that's that lighthouse concept, which is ultimately in the end, no, you can't put your, the belief in your success is not in me. The belief in your success is in you because it's your nervous system and it's your process. Yeah. One of the so first, what, yeah, it, it, I, and w- one of the things you say, you know, is your first principle is that, and we've talked about this disembodied eating is a nervous system issue, not a behavioral one. So in your course, the shift or your, your community, do you teach people, um, nervous system regulation techniques? And obviously they have each other, which is great. Um, but h- how yeah. do you plan on kind of getting people into their bodies and teaching them about the nervous system, which is its own course, right? It's its own understanding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is an 11 step incremental process. Um, and it is a self-guided process. So right. there's this, there's all this education in the beginning. And then you, there's this, uh, you know, if you will, uh, uh, an online course kind of thing. I don't, mm-hmm. Even I've never, I don't really, I don't think I've really ever done an online course. So I, I don't I have anything to compare it to. Um, but it's an 11 step incremental process starting with it's, have you seen um, Karate Kid wax on, wax off? Yeah. Right? And paint yeah. and sand mm-hmm. the sand the floor. Yeah. So it's basically incrementally 
teaching people in a we're not in the first bunch of steps. We, 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 we're not really talking. We're not really addressing any disembodied eating at all. It's really about bringing people into an awareness of self in this really slow process. And again, it's not a slow process. It's a, it's a process in whatever, in whichever way their bodies feel like they need to go through it. I encourage them. I will be encouraging folks to go slow and take their time. Um, and they can also go back and do it as many times as they need. Um, and then when you get to a place where we start talking about relationship to food, you have these indicators, these variables that you're tracking on a scale of one to 10, a suds level, because this is not binary. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's a shifting of nervous system. And then ultimately that in and of itself is really powerful work because you're increasing your interoception through that process. And then I offer, I, um, in the, in like the step eight is when you get access to this library of tools of nervous system, shifting tools, body-based. You said, you said uh, something that I think that audience might want you to expand upon. So you said, um, interoception. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah. So interoception is information that is being sent um, all of the time to, from your body, from your viscera, from your insides and from your sensory, um, sensory uh, nervous system. Mm -hmm. So also outside of the body and all of that information is being sent and being metabolized and sorted through in the brain. And we actually have access to um, on an explicit, in an, anyway, it's all implicit, implicit being below conscious awareness and explicit being in conscious awareness. Interoception is building the skill of, of awareness of the subtleties and sometimes not so subtle experiences of your body and the language of your body. And that's interoception. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. I mean, we are taking in data all the time and how we work yeah. with it, what we do with it. And that does inform a lot, everything, maybe, um, yeah, everything. And yeah, so then they get the tools and then they get application. That's when that gets raw. And we talk about resistance and we talk about the parts of you that don't want to stop, don't want to use the tools, mm-hmm. strategies around that. Um, and then at the end, um, I give them access to a really specific tool that I designed, um, that offers structure. Yeah. Offers something for people to do and it takes everything we've learned and puts it into this really fancy little tool that I've created mm-hmm. and and then we continue to support each other in each of those steps in the community yeah. and I love how you said that and I, we've talked about this too but like a the, the healthiest thing for a nervous system is a regulated nervous system and the worst thing for a nervous system is a dysregulated nervous system so um I, it is my firm belief that things like this, that I think they need community in order to exist and to flourish and to sustain. Um, and obviously a, a regulated community, which I know you will, you lead the way with, but, um, you know, I, this isn't yeah. an individual pursuit as much as it's personal. It's, you know, we think about this idea of unlearning when we were growing up, we got all kinds of signals from the world, from people, comments, media comparisons, what it means to be a woman and have a body. Um, Mm -hmm. we all have to actively unlearn our relationship to what we were told it should, you know, our bodies should be. Um, and it sounds like your course is going to be beginning that conversation of helping people challenge and question the assumptions they have about their body and their, their relationship to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's about unlearning the belief and the knowledge and the, or rather the, the con the concept that if I just do these things and I change and shift and address this behavior, if it'll go away. And if it doesn't, I did it wrong. Mm -hmm. That's the big unlearning is that it doesn't work that way. Those behaviors are what we team up with. Those behaviors that you hate, hate because of the fact that you feel out of control and being in control is idealized. It might make you have a different size that you don't want. And that's not, you know, that's not okay. So all of that's in there too, but it's about taking those big, bad behaviors 
and using them as support. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can feel myself. I can feel myself. I can feel myself. It's happening. Yeah. That means you, that means your body is doing something and that's the, that's the signal for us to return. Yeah. That's also radical. Um, meaning not a lot of people talk like that. Not a lot of people invite you to sit with, let's say the behavior or the thing that you're trying to shun or get rid of, or have shame about, um, that, you know, obviously your background, you will bring that at, that's a somatic experience. It's a, it's a healing experience. Um, I, I thought, I thought about this a little bit as we were talking, you know, when I would back when I was working for a medical company, we would talk to our patients and ask them to realize that symptoms were just their body's way of communicating that there was a rash on your skin. It was not, it wasn't actually in a, well, there was complication, but it was actually your body saying, Hey, help. Hey, like, listen to me, you know, there's some data here and let's have a conversation. And I think that's a radical way of thinking in medicine still today. Um, and I think that what you're doing here is challenging the way that we communicate with the world and ourselves in, in a way that is, um, you know, it's, it's so funny it, to me, it's so common sense. It makes so much sense, but I, I just know that this is still really radical and new for people to make friends with, you know, uh, mm. the behaviors that they have been ashamed. Yes. Um, yes. That's, that's radical. Yeah. But yeah, I think maybe we, good. maybe we need radical. Maybe we need, maybe we need that in this world today. We, we need to take all these things that we've been fed and we need to blow them up and question them and begin to create a new playbook. You know, I think that especially within the realm of women's health and, and health in general, it's clearly not working. <laughs> so let's find new ways. Um, true. So true. So yeah, it's, it's a process. Yeah. For you, I have a couple of questions just before we close, but um, who are some people that you know, I know you say on your website that this is for everyone and there's an asterisk there, but who, who is good for finding this shift? Who's ready? Do you think? And how do they know if this is a, a course or a, a service for them? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first is you, you I would want them to um, do a little bit of intro, do a little bit of introspection, a little inner curiosity and ask yourself the question, do is this does this sound familiar to me does this sound like i disembodied I, I have a disembodied eating experience happening um number one number two um it is important that you are prepared to know that it's not a quick fix it's not a guarantee even it's it's a it's an exploration and if you're yeah. ready for that and a lot of people aren't and that's yeah. okay yeah that's okay um it's really when i developed this the first i think i forget what they're called like a purpose idea a purpose statement or something and the thing i kept going back to was it's for people who oh this is this is a, this is a good answer i know we have to be careful with time but this got re-enlivened in me, this find the shift, when I saw a Facebook post um, from a binge eating uh, Facebook group, uh, people who are struggling with binge eating, and it popped up. And this woman, I don't know who she is or where she is, but she wrote this post and she was so desperate and saying, why mm. am I doing this? Why can't I stop? Why? And she was mm. so, it appeared so desperate. And my feeling was, I just want to tell her it's not her fault. Yeah. Yeah. So, so much about find the shift is about alleviating that sense of shame and alleviating that sense of I am bad and I am lazy and offering this whole new perspective on what the heck has been going on this whole time. And so it's good. It, find the shift is for people who want to know, like what has been going on mm. for people who, um, are curious about doing something that feels really radical, like you said, is instead of holding this shame, and again, shame is not a choice all the time, but working towards releasing the shame of being like, if I can befriend mm -hmm. this feeling. It's for people um, 
who are, um, you know, the community is a huge part of it. You don't have to be a super active person in the community. Like mm -hmm. I know this could be really overwhelming for some folks who are just like, ah, I don't really want to like talk to strangers on the internet. Um, you, you don't have to be the, the most active sharer, but you'll see it. You'll so it'll be for people who are both really wanting activity in an online community and people who want to be the observers on the sidelines, and that's cool too. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, two questions before we close. What are you currently um, in your life on learning, really unpacking? What is one thing that you're really unlearning for yourself? Um, hmm. That's a tough one um, because I'm only, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly unlearning and learning. Um, yeah. The, the first is, um, I'm still really working on my journey too of unlearning value to size, my body size. Mm -hmm. Still actively working on that. I can still yeah. feel a huge, still in relationship to it, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, so still actively unlearning my value compared to my shape. Mm -hmm. um, and I think just actively unlearning um, my own patterns of isolation. There you go. It's funny that it was hard for me to remember, but <laughs> yeah. I'm actively trying to unlearn doing everything alone. Mm. Yes. I am really, really good at doing things by myself. Um, so I'm really actively trying to unlearn that yeah. and let people in for help. And if you were to define unlearning or um, give it a felt sensation of, you know, what comes up for you when you hear the word unlearning or how you define it, what would you say? It's like, um, light. It feels like, um, soft light, like sunlight. Um, like a sunrise. That's the felt sense of it. Um, mm -hmm. not like the lights get turned on and mm -hmm. it's like this slow, slow emergence of light that's what unlearning feels like to me very good um michelle this has been an incredibly enriching um hour of our of our day and love the the synergy here on nervous system um disembodiment and 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 really unlearning you know how to how to befriend our our symptoms, how to befriend our behaviors that are deemed bad or problematic. I think all of this is very cutting edge. I think all of this is very necessary for men and for women or people who identify as men and women to begin to come back home to themselves. And I love that you're doing this work. It's necessary work. Um, so thank you for doing this. Thank you. And we're going to close with a little rapid fire here. Um, these are questions that I will come up with on the spot and you will come up with an answer on the spot and go with, go with whatever comes first. Um, okay. So matcha or coffee? Coffee. Yeah. Um, uh, hard, like a handheld book or audible. Handheld. Always. Actually, gotta... I, I actually, I say that, but. I thought you were going to say Kindle and hard help. If I was, if it was Kindle to hard cover, I would choose hard cover. Yeah. But booked audio. It's, it's actually audio for me because I have a hard time uh, reading. Cool. Um, <laughs> would you say mountains or ocean are more desirable? Mm, mountains. Cool. Um, what's a country you want to visit next? Mm. Portugal. Nice. Um, 
what's a book that you're reading or you want to read soon? Oh, I have 700 started, 700 started. I'd like to complete one of them. <laughs> that uh-huh. would be great. Yeah. Um, let's say, um, oh my gosh. I, I, I want to read a fiction and, and, and be able to do that. But I'm too busy reading other things. I have to finish Trauma and Memory by Peter Levine. Ah, that's a great one. Um, what's your favorite, if there is a favorite sort of, um, practice to get regulated, what, what's the thing you do? That's like no brainer every time it helps you. Uh, I have, um, my tool of choice is the words I, uh, you exist and I close my ears mm-hmm. and I, um, take three deep breaths, listening to my ears, um, list with my ears closed. And then I say the words, you exist, you exist, you exist, you exist. But I say it probably like sometimes 80 to a hundred times until I can feel myself return. That's my tool of choice and principle number four. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's a beautiful place for us to close. Um, You do exist. I'm so happy you exist and that you've done this work um, because it's again, like I said, necessary and um, I think it's going to create a huge ripple effect in the community. And I look forward to supporting you and seeing what, what you do next. Thank you so much. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.